Beloved, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible. And if you're visiting with us this morning, you just look in front of you, in the racks in front of you, you will see a copy of God's Word there. Please avail yourself to that to follow along. Turn in the second book of that Bible to Exodus. That's where we will be. That's where we continue our study. Exodus chapter 4. Chapter 4. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the call of God in this chapter, and really the chapter before it, the call of God. The call of God in Moses' life, where he calls him, he calls Moses after 40 years in the wilderness. It's been our study. We studied God's call in the first part of chapter 3. Remember, God's initiation and God's presentation, to name a few. Then we looked at Moses' response to that call. Do you remember last week his five protests to that call of God? Yet with each, graciously, mercifully, patiently, God affirmed his presence with Moses. We could say everything that needed to be said is in, look at chapter 3, verse 12, when God said, I will be with you. Every response of God to the protest is a derivative of that. I'm with your mouth. I'm with the people around you. Moses, I am with you. In every respect, there is nothing left to be said. That's where we left off last time. When you look at the discourse between God Almighty and Moses, there's nothing left to be said. The call is heard, the response addressed. However, no other words does not mean there is nothing left that needs attention. No other words doesn't mean there's nothing else that needs attention. Indeed, there are final preparations that Moses needs to attend to. That's the purpose of these final verses in chapter 4, to see that Moses needs to attend to these things as he picks up the call of God. Important preparations that are either major and or missed by Moses. We will examine this morning three final preparations here to close this chapter. And church, listen, these verses as you look at them, starting in verse 18, are not chapter leftovers. That's not what this is. They are, as we'll see, absolutely critical to the preparation and work of Moses in the service of God. So let's get right to it and turn our attention now to verse 18. And we will look at home relocation. Verse 18, home relocation. We consider Moses' current home, his current home, in verse 18. Look at it. It says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Now, since the opening of chapter 3, think about that with me. Chapter 3, verse 1, do you remember? Moses has been where? On the mountain, on God's mountain, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. That's where he's been with the burning bush that's been that extended encounter. That's where we've been. He's been there since the opening of chapter 3. Well, here... Moses heads down into Midian to the home of his father-in-law, Jethro. 
who's been, he's been in, remember, Jethro's care in his home for how long? 40 years. He's been with Jethro, his father-in-law. He married his daughter. He tended his sheep. That's four decades that Moses has been with Jethro in his home, and that's been home. 40 years together. Again, we need to, to stress here, for four decades, that's been home for Moses, caring for Jethro's family and his resources. As such, Moses, who has shown nothing but perfect courtesy to this family, and we saw that in chapter 3, now extends it again, and look at this, by respectfully seeking Jethro's blessing to leave. Do you see that? The request, as you look at it there, he says, to see if my family's still alive, was an ancient Near Eastern idiom, basically to say, to check in, to check in with my family. That's what Moses is asking here. I need to go and check on them. I need to see them. Of course, we know Moses has been called to do more than just check in, right? There's more to it than that, but likely, we don't know for sure, but likely in discretion here, Moses wants to obey with minimal upset and disruption. Moses keeps it short, but still makes it clear that his intention is to go back. Thus, Jethro, look at the end of verse 18, gives his blessing and says, Go in peace. Go in peace. With that, we see the Lord direct Moses and move in the next two verses. We continue in verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Let's make a couple of comments on those verses, and then we need to consider the implications for us. Just two verses. It's not simply just moving the narrative along. There's a lot there we need to comment on. First, notice what God tells Moses. Look at it. What does God tell Moses? That all the men who were seeking your life are what? They're dead. God does not need to share this detail of assurance. Does that not strike you? He doesn't need to tell him that. God doesn't need to give us the details of how it's going to go down when he asks us to listen to him. But God graciously here to Moses gives him this detail to say they're dead. God gives grace. This is grace. And we can say God has called in church. When God calls, that's enough, right? When God calls, that's enough. Yet God assures his called one. Secondly, notice that this is not a solo trip for Moses. It is with who? His wife and his sons. In fact, as we look back to verse 18 and Moses' respectful request, we realize that this is not an excursion for Moses. This is not an excursion, but look deeper. This is a relocation. Relocation. This is Moses, staff in hand with family for the foreseeable future, taking that family and moving them to Egypt. And we would say, for Moses, back to Egypt. And that brings us to the implications here. Again, this is no small detail. This is what we're prone to miss often when we read the Bible too quickly. For Moses and beloved, by extension for us, to begin with, we need to consider the realities of home and the call of God. I want you to think about home for a moment and when you're called by God. When God calls, our home is disrupted. 
When God calls our home is disrupted, I know we don't like that thought. Because everything about God and love should be comforting and warm and cozy. But listen, the text makes clear, and this will become more abundant in a moment with other passages we'll look at. When God calls you, Christian, your home is disrupted. This is so much more than just four walls and bricks and mortar here. What are we talking about? Home is our comfort. Home is our familiarity. Who we are close to. All of that is home. Well, here for Moses, the call of God on his life requires home relocation. And listen to me, after 40 years of what? Tending sheep in the quiet wilderness, that's peaceful. You almost could. The text doesn't say this. I want to be clear. Moses is saying, this is a great life. I have a great life. Jethro's taken me in. He's got everything I need. Life is good. Forty years of bliss. Yet he's called away from that home, from Midian. And listen, and those he's called away. Let's zero in now. He's called away from those that are not God's people. And that life away from God's people. And church, it is no different for us today with God's people today and the call on the life of the Christian today. When God calls, we undergo a home relocation. Our home base changes. Again, we're not talking about bricks and mortar. Where you call home is redefined. That means, beloved, movement is required. Like Moses, hear me, home is no longer with the Midianites. You see that? Home is no longer with the Midianites. Home is going to be with God's people. With them, and note this, in their distress, serving them, that, Moses, is now your home. Now, of course, this doesn't mean we cut off every relationship that is not of God. Does it mean we cut off every Midianite relationship? That's not what we're talking about. No, but it does mean we are merely, here it is, loved ones, we are merely visitors to Midian. We are not residents. We are visitors to Midian. We are not residents. Home relocation also means our new home, although now with God's people, and note this, does not mean it will be in a godly society. Where is Moses going home to? Egypt. He's going home to Egypt. I would submit we're very much in Egypt today. But he calls him to be with his people in this very hostile society. Like today, beloved, in this room, our home is here this morning together, but on hostile ground. And Christian, we desperately need to see this final preparation of Moses here today because it is directly relevant to our lives and the calling of God on each one of us today. I'll just give you a couple references here. Speaking of home relocation, Jesus Christ said this, Matthew 10, 35, mark it. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Is that disruption? Jesus is not home-wrecking here, beloved. Hear me. He's not home-wrecking. What is he doing? He's home-renovating. He's home-renovating. The point is not that Jesus came with a purpose to disrupt homes. Let's not miss the point. Jesus didn't come 
with some sort of killjoy agenda just to turn up homes upside down. Jesus did not come with a purpose to disrupt, but here's the point that Jesus coming by implication will disrupt homes. Do you see that? By implication, if Jesus is who he says he is, and he is, by implication, it is going to turn homes into snow globes. It's going to turn them upside down because that's the implication of the Son of God in breaking dead lives. We need to see from the mouth of Jesus. When called by God, brothers and sisters, our home is affected, it's relocated. Everything that we consider home must be relocated if we are called by God. I am so tempted to give a little sermonette and excursus here on so many of our problems when we try to hang on to Midian. And when we try to make our home in Midian. Yet we're called by God, but we can't let go of Midian. And Jesus here is saying, no, there will be disruption. And to think we can be called by God, but unaffected with our sense of home. Let me give you one more. That kind of thinking is no different. Do you remember the rich young man that ran up to Jesus in Mark 10? He wanted all of Midian with him, didn't he? He's like, look, here's my list of rules. I've done them, but let me keep Midian. Let me keep all of these things here. He thought that just keeping a few rules while hanging on to home was enough to be called a follower of Jesus. We still fall prey to that, do we not? Just do this, do that, and you're good. No, Moses' final preparation here involved a new home, and mark this, a new place of being. A new place of being. That is but one final preparation. We continue and now see another, not just home relocation, heart revelation. Heart revelation. With the home front dealt with, God now turns to matters of the heart. This next section... We'll see God address both Pharaoh's heart and Moses' heart. That's what we're going to see in this section. First, we need to consider, as the text does, what God has to say about Pharaoh. Look at verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Chapter 4 opened, remember God gave Moses miracles to do before the people. Do you remember that in verses 1 through 9? Well, here God references for the first time miracles that he's going to do before Pharaoh, miracles that God is going to give Moses to do before Pharaoh. And those miracles in Egypt will be set against something even more incredible. This is astounding. Look at the end of verse 21. Those miracles set against this. God says, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. A statement like that just begs to be stating the obvious. That is a very clear statement from God, is it not? That's a clear statement. He tells Moses exactly what he is going to do. God says to Moses, I will, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Even more, look at the purpose. I'll, I'll harden that heart so that Pharaoh will not let the people go. Now, this is actually the first of a number of mentions in Exodus of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. 
We actually are going to see that a number of times in the chapters ahead. This is just the beginning, and this is almost by way of overview. But of course, and, and some of you are feeling and thinking this now, that, that reality of God and what he does to Pharaoh in this account has both perplexed and provoked many in history. Some say this is just unfair. I mean, God taking his heart and hardening, that's just unfair. Some seek to redefine this clear statement. Still, some just altogether reject the possibility and the notion that God's sovereignty, that is, his all-powerful rule and absolute control over all things in his creation, could extend and does extend as far as the inner reaches of the human heart. Some say there's ground that God cannot touch. My heart. Some say that. Of course, with that you hear this, which logically for some flows next. What about my heart and my will? What about my free will? You've heard that. Now, those are important questions, and they do deserve attention. And given the gravity of those questions, you will be thankful to know that we will be in the Pharaoh account for a while, right? Over the next few weeks and months as we get into these chapters, we're going to take our time with this. You'll be thankful to know that. Yes, as mentioned, this is not the first time that we encounter this truth in Exodus. Again, we're going to come back to this over and over again, so I want to stress this is by way of overview this morning. However, by way of introduction, and as appropriate in this introductory verse to this theme, we need to make a few observations before we continue along. And I want to stress with these comments, they're not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. But we just simply want to lay out some groundwork of what the Bible is teaching here. And again, in a very plain verse like this. First, And I've said it already, the plain reading of this verse, and by the way, the others that are to come, is quite clear. Can we get comfortable with that for a moment? We can say many things about this, but one thing that is crystal clear is that this is clear. There's no fancy wording here. You you don't need to know the Hebrew to understand this, right? This, This is not some crazy, only the scholars know it. God will harden Pharaoh's heart. We may not like it. We may not understand it initially, and we may not want it, but none of that ever affects what? Whether something is true. Whether or not I like it, whether or not we understand it, whether or not we want to embrace it, never affects the truth of something. Is that not true? It's either true or not, regardless of our opinion on it. And to hammer the point home grammatically, speaking of languages, God uses three different Hebrew words in this extended account with Pharaoh to prove this point. Three different ways to say hardening. We're going to see them in the months to come. So that's one. Two, this is not an isolated work of God. This is not, oh yeah, there's that Pharaoh thing with his heart, but you know, everyone else, they have lots of room. It's just Pharaoh. Whatever it is with Pharaoh, I don't know, but everyone else was different. No. The consistency of God's word 
is everywhere. Let me just pull out a few. 40 years later in the wilderness warnings from this account, so 40 years later, Moses would be 120, before the promised land entry, God again hardens a heart with a clear text, this time King Sihon, as noted, note this, Deuteronomy 2.30. The word says this, the Lord God hardened Sihon's spirit and made his heart obstinate. Does that sound familiar? God hardens King Sihon's heart. A few months after that account, in Deuteronomy 2, under Joshua's leadership, as the Israelites conquered northern Canaan, that northern territory, note this, Joshua 11.20 records that it was the Lord's doing, mark this, to harden the hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. Same language. And notice this with those accounts, and those are just a few. The hardening of the heart always is with a purpose. Do you see that? The hardened heart with a purpose ultimately by God. So that's two. Three, the Bible also tells us that God's sovereignty over our heart works in all ways. We need to see this. This is not he's just sovereign in the hard and the negative things. He's sovereign in everything. God does not exercise his sovereignty over hearts just by hardening. That's not the God that you serve. Proverbs 21.1, listen to this and mark this verse as we just prayed for kings, it comprehensively in Proverbs 21.1 says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Is that sovereignty in the human heart? It is. What about Ezra 6? When the Israelites look to celebrate the Passover in newly reoccupied land, we're told of this, of the king of Assyria's heart. Listen closely in verse 22. The Lord had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to Israel by giving them aid in rebuilding. Exact same thing over and over again, right? Do we see the pattern? And of course, what about in the New Covenant? The New Testament describes God's sovereign, all-powerful work reigning in our hearts in a number of ways. Let me just remind you of these glorious truths of God's sovereignty over your heart. John 3 tells us that God... His initiation, his power, will regenerate our hearts and make them reborn. That's sovereignty. Hebrews 8 reminds us that in the new covenant, God writes his standard on our heart. You talk about getting into our wheelhouse. God is going to take our heart and he's going to put his law on our hearts. And Philippians 2 says this, listen, God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's astounding, isn't it? He is going to work through me and you for his goodwill and pleasure. That is God's sovereign work positively in our hearts before and above our wills. We haven't even addressed our wills yet. The Bible makes clear God is supreme in our hearts. Yet we must note this one thing. No one has an issue with God working sovereignly in that way, do they? You never hear anyone protest, you know, God regenerated my heart, and that's just not fair. You know what? God is working for good in my heart. He's got my heart in his hands, and you know what? I don't like it. You never hear anyone say that, and beloved, listen to me. That tells you something. It tells you something about the need for sovereignty in our hearts. Our hearts are desperately, desperately wicked. Four. And we'll have more to say on this, but it does need to be said as we open this account. 
The Bible also says that Pharaoh hardens his heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Yes, ten times we will be told in this Exodus account that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Can we be clear about that? Ten times we're told God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But we will also learn equally that ten times Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And those statements are just as clear. In fact, you will see unbelievable rebellion by Pharaoh against God. You will see a rejection of the holy God. You will see obstinance like you've never seen. You will see a hardened heart, the text says, by Pharaoh himself, set against these incredible works of God, the ten plagues. We will learn much of this great doctrine of the sovereignty of God, but one thing we will not see, beloved, and mark this, is that we are just passive robots. That's not what you're going to see in this account. We are not fatalistic creatures whose choices don't matter. The Bible never says anything about that. No, in this coming encounter, we'll learn that our choices are real and our own. I always tell people that struggle with the sovereignty of God, you tell me if you've ever felt like your choices weren't your own. Have you ever felt like someone's controlling me? No. We all recognize the genuineness of our choices the weight of our choices. And we'll learn here that our choices are not only our own, but here it is, we are accountable for those choices. You see that? And we're going to see this with Pharaoh. In fact, look at verses 22 to 23. They tell us that Pharaoh is responsible for his stubborn heart to the tune of what? That if, look at verse 23, if, that is a condition, he refuses, the price will be what? His firstborn son for God's firstborn son, which in context here is Israel. So much more we could say about that. By the way, the Egyptians put a high price on the firstborn son, not only special but sacred. And you see what God is setting up here. You refuse to let my firstborn son go? Well, then this is what is going to happen to your firstborn son. Very much, and here's the point, the weight is on Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you need to do something about that. You need to soften your heart, Pharaoh. You, you need to yield to God. Listen, first, foremost, and ultimately, let's be clear, God is sovereign over the heart. That is the preeminent understanding in the sovereignty of God. He controls our hearts. And under that, right, operating within that as a domain under the umbrella of God's sovereignty is the reality that Our wills are real and genuine. And here it is even more. God's sovereignly first cause works through our second cause wills. You say, I can't understand that. I can't grasp it. And we say, good. Because if we did, we'd be God. And none of us want to be that. He is the first cause. He is the initiator. He is sovereign. He is the great decreer over all things. And in his might, in his supremacy, he takes something, and this is it, as supernatural as it seems, and it is, he will work through your free choice wills for his ultimate decree and will. Let me ask you something. Do you serve a great God? You better believe it. Praise him. Now, we need to leave it there for now. I digress. However, we'll be back there in weeks to come. We're just going to keep packing this doctrine more and more and unveiling all its wonderful truths. 
So that's the revelation of Pharaoh's heart here. God holds it in his hands. Yet as we noted previously, that's not the only heart revealed in God's sovereignty. Moses' heart is set against another here. And Look now at verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So we let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. I'm sure you're looking at that account and you're like, This seems stark. Where did this come from? What am I reading? I was just reading about Pharaoh and Moses and all of a sudden got all kinds of details here. This is death sought, a crude operation, I mean with a rock, and lots of blood shed and named. What is going on here? Well, for all its odd pieces, it really functions just to make one point. There's really one point of this account, but we'll make comments on the details. And it is that Moses, here's the point, has been harboring disobedience. I think any of you, if you just pull out for a moment, can see Moses is in the wrong here. There's something he has not done, right? In fact, we would say this, Moses has been holding back. Do you see that? Even at a 10,000-foot view, we see that. In all of Moses' preparations, he neglected this critical heart revelation. He's failed to deal with this ongoing disobedience to bring his life in accord with God's commands. And to understand this, turn to Genesis 17. Put your finger in Exodus 4 and turn to Genesis 17. What is Moses being disobedient about? Well, we need the context here. Genesis 17 this is coming off of the birth of Ishmael, when Abraham was 86 years old. There's 13 years now have passed, and we're going to pick up the account, the account in chapter 17. The covenant is restated in those opening verses, 1 to 8, and we're going to pick it up now in verse 9. Covenant, remember, continues to be restated and affirmed in Genesis, but here is something that is unveiled for the first time about this covenant, particularly the sign of the covenant. And God said to Abraham, verse 9, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. There is the command. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Before you read verse 14, these are commands. You see that this whole account here is laced with imperatives. This is what you're to do. This is the sign of the covenant. I've made a covenant with you. I, Yahweh, I'm making this covenant with you, Abraham, your descendants. Here is the sign that you are to do. And then look at verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So not only are here our commands to do, I'm giving you this command to do, but there is... A warning here. If, if you don't do this thing, 
this individual will be cut off from the covenant. You see that? There's a very stern warning. God has given command and a warning with it. That's really important as you turn back to Exodus. Remember, this is the command that Moses would be under as well. Now, as you're turning back to Exodus 4, just remember the gaps for a moment. So Moses would be under this, but there's been 400 years from this account, right, of the patriarchs in Genesis to this book in Egypt. 400 years, even more. Remember the 40 years of bliss for Moses in Egypt, right? Living where? With God's people? No, in Midian. In Midian. You can just put the pieces together. That's an awful long time and an awfully strained environment, we would say. And when we commented at the burning bush this two weeks ago, Moses is far away from God's people, God's revelation even, God's word. Long enough time for Moses, it would seem, to neglect this fundamental command of God to his covenant people. Even more, Moses has been 40 years in the wilderness. Gershom, by any conservative estimate, is now in his 30s. Picture, Gershom's in his 30s, and dad has done nothing about it. It's dad's responsibility, and he's abdicated that. He's done nothing about it. Not even it would seem. Now, you might think the most optimistic, okay, Moses, you've been called. Take care of the Gershom thing. No. The text, by implication, says he hasn't. As such, the just God seeks vengeance. Yes, that's right. As only he has the right to do, here it is, for sin. And mark this, beloved, every disobedience is sin. Every act of disobedience is sin. We can rationalize it. We can put it aside. Every time we disobey, it's sin. And Moses has sinned. He's in this ongoing sin before God. Now, to understand the fact that God is seeking death here, we need to understand, and this will help us with sovereignty as well, God, sovereign God, standard definer, architect, creator of you and me, the only true and holy God, has every right to call in judgment whenever he pleases. Is that not true? We lose sight of this, don't we? Especially the free grace movement has just destroyed these notions for us. God is a holy God. And in fact, you want to talk about cosmic decree. By cosmic decree, that judgment can be called in at any point because that's his sovereign prerogative to do so. Now, praise God. As we see in the Bible, most times he does it for our good right? But we can't lose sight of the fact that that is called for here. This is a judgment on Moses and his family because Moses has been in disobedience. And whatever that death visit looked like, we don't know if it's illness or circumstance. Again, we just don't know. We do know that Zipporah, remember his wife, Jethro's daughter, takes action. Look at it. I mean, the crude details all just come to life. It grabbed a sharpened rock, a flint, and she did the deed. Afterwards, she presents the foreskin to Moses. By the way, the rendering there could be threw it at Moses, touched him enough so that it would, would hit him, and says, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. In other words, because of the neglected circumcision, because of the near death, Zipporah says this, now you are my blood husband. That's our relationship now. It's blood now, if there was one detail not to miss in this very vivid encounter, it is this right here, church, and that the blood work, look at verse 26, the blood work is enough. God did what with the blood work? 
He left him alone. Here it is, blood shed, blood presented, blood covered. That and only that is what atones. Moses' life is spared because blood was shed and it touched him. Can you grab that? Moses' life was spared because blood was shed, it was spilled, and it touched him. You see that? The sequence of events, of course, is very similar, like a shadow of what we will see in Exodus 12. At the Passover, there the blood is shed. There the blood touches the doorpost. There the blood spares death. Even more, that, Exodus 12, in the Passover is a shadow of what's to come ultimately in the New Covenant, where the blood spilled and the blood that atones is not in circumcision or in animal sacrifice. Instead, it is in perfect blood of the God-man, God's blood. The shed blood of the Son of God, not just for one sin, but for the sins particularly of God's chosen people, those that would repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Blood shed definitively for them. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Why? Because the Son of God, the Lamb of God, shed His blood for His people. Now before we leave this incident at the lodging place on the way, along with that, some other takeaways. Number one, as you consider this account in Exodus 4, past sin or current sin is no blockage for God calling you. Do you hear that? Past sin or present sin is no blockage for Almighty God calling you. Why is that important? You're going to hear people say this. I need to get right with God first. I, I just need to get right with God. I got to pull up some bootstraps. I got to get right with God. I got to make myself fit and ready. Beloved, we can never do that. And that is the amazing grace that God calls sinners. God calls sinners. No, it's not a matter of you getting right before God calls you and you're useful to God. That's just not true. God called Moses with this sin skeleton in the closet. And I mean, is it any bigger than this? The sign of the covenant, Moses, you're in disobedience to. And yet God called him. Think about that for a moment. What if that was revealed to his people? And of course, God called Saul in the middle of what? A charitable exercise for the church? Those in Damascus and Antioch? No. He was on a sinful rampage. And Jesus knocked him off his horse and said, I'm calling you. Acts 9. Beloved, mark this. The issue is not what you need to do to be called by God. The issue is not what you need to do to be called by God, but rather what you need to attend to when you're called by God. Does that make sense? It's not what you need to do in order to get God's calling in favor. It's what, will listen, beloved. Praise God. God is calling you, and now this deserves your attention. That's what the Bible teaches. This deserves our attention. God calls us in a variety of sinful states, but he calls us out of them to purify ourselves, to set ourselves apart, and to be wholly devoted and committed unto him. That's the calling of God. Two, God takes notice of and is displeased with the sins of his own people. Do you see that? God takes notice of Moses' sin, and he's very displeased. And this should hardly warrant comment for us, but it's so vital 
and such an epidemic in its own right today that it needs to be. God never turns a blind eye to the sins of his children. There's no free pass because you're in church this morning. God does not, in fact, in fact, if you look at this text, it's squarely on Moses. I'm looking right at you, God Almighty says. In other words, we can say it this without apology. It is never okay. Sin of any kind is never, ever okay. All the more, can I say this? Yes, I can. When you're God's people, all the more sin is not okay. It's not okay. Joshua 7, Achan's sin of greed and theft. Even in conquest, you would say, you know, cut Achan some slack. We're in conquest here, God. No. What does God say? He calls them tribe by tribe. And that absolutely excruciating account where then it's just Achan exposed for his sin. 2 Samuel 12, David's sin of lust and murder was not bypassed. God didn't say, well, you know, that's a man after my own heart. We can let that one go. Surely you will lose your son. It's not okay. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, the sin of lying, was not put aside because you know this church thing was really taken off in the first century. God doesn't give a free pass to them. He calls them to account, and they lay dead. Moses learned here what he would record later in the book of Numbers 32-23, and it is this, be sure your sin will find you out. If you're called by God, that's actually a glorious reality. We know what we want to do to our sin, right? God in his sovereignty, praise God, says, no, 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 no. No. I'll use Zipporah for that. That sin needs to be rooted out. Beloved, when called by God, mark this, we address, confess, and put away our sins. Third, no circumstance or office can ever be used as an excuse for disobeying God's command. We have a tendency to think this way sometimes. No office, no circumstance is ever an excuse to disobey the clearly expressed commands of God. It doesn't matter what position the Christian has, missionary, usher, or elder, it doesn't matter. No call of God is above being accountable to God. In fact, to be used by God at all, and if you're truly his, he will use you, means that we must be active in our heart revelations and attentions. We have to be. That's what this text is teaching us. Church, final preparations must involve this lest we embark with heart disease. Lest we embark with heart disease. And can we say in light of Pharaoh and Moses here, and we need to say this again to kind of cap our intro to the sovereignty of God. Thank God Almighty that he rules our heart. Thank God. I often think people that want to protest and hold on to control for themselves, I want to say, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking when you say, no, I have a little bit of control. I have 1% control. At least let me have that. We would say, Christian, we don't even want that. That's too much. God, take it all. Praise God that he is sovereignly in control over our hearts and not us. Praise God that we can thank God that he does with this heart and your heart whatever he pleases. Can you say, praise God that it's in his hands for his perfect purposes. I don't want an iota of control in my own life. God, take it all. Why? Am I just a fanatic? Because unlike me and unlike us, God is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. 
God is just. Genesis 18, 25. And God, listen to me, beloved. God is good. Psalm 23, 6. That's who I want controlling my heart. And praise God, he is. That's the heart revelation we need, Westmount. One more, though. Home preparations, heart revelations, last help recognition. We close this chapter with verses 27 to 31. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he'd commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. The people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Go back to verse 14 for a moment. Look at verse 14. Do you remember the final protest and the response in verse 14? Moses in verse 13 said, My Lord, send someone else. Remember, he was desperate. In verse 14, what did he promise? Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. And look at this. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You get the sense in that account, this is already in motion, right? This is already in motion. God has met the protest. This is in motion. The only question then, then is when will this come to fruition? Well, right here. Right here in these final verses of chapter 4. Here we see the fulfillment of that promise. Moses and Aaron meeting up. Aaron sent by God to meet his brother by God. Help indeed on the way, but note this not for a family visit, but directly from the divine decree and orchestration of God, of God. So they meet on the mountain Horeb, and Moses, you can imagine, has much to pass on. What a meeting, right? What a meeting. A debrief on what God has said, the signs that they will do. You can just catch a glimpse of that. Moses has much to say to his brother. And I want you to just consider for a moment the boost that that would be for Moses. Can you imagine? Moses in Midian, he's on his way to Egypt. What a boost. I mean, a relative from Egypt, from the lion's den, comes out to meet him. And look at that, not only comes out to meet him, gives him a good greeting, he kisses him, that ancient Near Eastern good warm greeting, and a help, a help from his own people, who doesn't only greet him warmly and well, but he listens to him. Do you see that? But that's not all. Once together, Moses and Aaron head back into Egypt, and when they head into Egypt, where do they go? Look at it. Verse 29, they go right to the elders, the leaders of Israel. This is not trying to curry favor at the gate. Remember Absalom when he's trying to curry favor at the gate? He's just got this discreet thing trying to grab and pick off the people. That's not what's going on here. Absalom trying to usurp the throne of his father. No. Moses knows he's been sent by the hand of God. You go right. You do it the right way. You go right to the leadership. He goes right to the elders. And Aaron there becomes the mouth for Moses. Look at verse 30. And also performs the signs. Now remember, Moses was concerned about this reception with the people. Will they know you? Will they believe? Remember that in chapter 3 and chapter 4, when God met, those, God met those protests, right? In word, here it is, in word to Moses, but look at verse 31. Now we see their fruition. Verse 31 says what? And the people believed. 
And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. They not only listen and hear, but they also worship. I think it's received. This can be considered nothing short of a corporate repentance for God's people in this time. And Moses, we need to say, this is no longer a people blocking you. Do you remember the mocking Israelite in chapter 2? Who made you a priest and judge over us? No, 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 no. That's not what you're seeing now. This is not people blocking you. This is people behind you. These are your people following you, God's people, wherever you go. Now go, Moses. Go. Go. Moses sees Aaron, meets the elders, and worships with his people. Everything is right. Those final preparations are the finishing touches that Moses receives in his call. He is not alone. Just as God has said, chapter 3, verse 12, God is with Moses. But God in his grace has now surrounded Moses with the help in his call, a brother to speak, elders to support, and a people surrounding him that worship Yahweh. That backing crowd caps the final preparation in Moses' call as chapter 4 closes. And we come full circle and we say, Moses, there is nothing left to say. There's nothing left to say, Moses. There's nothing left to attend to. Moses, you are finally prepared. You are finally ready. Your home is relocated. Your heart is revealed. And you have recognized the help around you. All that remains now is Pharaoh's court and the mission given to you by God. Now go. Now go. That confrontation begins, as you'll see, in chapter 5, and we'll just pick it up there next time. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your sovereignty in so many ways. Sovereignty that brought us here this morning from dark lives, maybe from dark weeks, and here we are. And Lord, that's one of many evidences of your sovereignty, your rule and control over our heart. And God, we thank you that you are. And Father, we pray that we would take this truth, this glorious truth from chapter 4 and these final preparations in Moses' call, that we would take these principles and implications into our own lives this week. Father, use us by your sovereign, powerful hand, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.